Hello and welcome to Friends and Frauds, this edition of 128 Sterling. So tell me, are you on the social networks? I imagine so. Are you okay with Facebook pushing memories from two, three, four years ago that suddenly appear on your feed? The photograph of the pet that died. The person you're friends with no longer. I Forgot to Remember to Forget by Lynn Crosby Inside of the solitude is sleep and blood, the occasional incident, watching him walk as if he's on strings, a malevolent silence. There are tears, and there are tears. I started giving things away last year for your friendship to people who no longer speak to me. Your illness makes me feel bad. Then throwing them out, as he ejects items from his broken body and as he throws whatever is near him with extreme violence. And I bring barrels outside to burn much of the rest. Dear Mère de Dieu, the work was first, then the money, love, and amity. Please send pails of watery blue mercy. Very truly. And very truly, I think among the ruins of the white leggings or tights that Carol lent me, which disappeared after Steve's furious departure. Printed with black and gold hieroglyphs, as beautiful as you and your style and mystery combined. They are folded inside me, as if by an employee of Le Chateau, where they are from, and bagged. For the empire is a soggy mess. In the dark, on many days, they glimmer. I saw you not too long ago, still pretty, but bereft of magic. And we stood where I last saw Steve, who died alone in the St. Joseph's waiting room and said we would get together. You never called back. What did the symbols say? Some calc of conversations spilled sweetly hundreds of holy nights ago. Clasped hands and yoked donkeys always. I will always recall losing one or two things that would come to symbolize the whole. The whole roly-poly, tear-racked bloodbath sounding off inside about what you take with you, and how we all die alone. Hello? Walter, how are you? I'm great. It's so good to hear your voice. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about how long I've known you, in the places I've known you... Walter Kern, the American novelist and author of My Hard Bargain, Thumbsucking, and made into a movie with George Clooney, Up in the Air, he's been a friend of mine for a long time. We met as students at Oxford. That's not me being poncy. The fact that Walter, raised a Mormon in Minnesota, got to be a student at Princeton and then at Oxford, such revered universities, comes into the story. At Oxford, both he and I came into contact with highfalutin sorts putting it on. In my case, Canadian members of the craven British North American Society, wearing tuxedos and holding glasses of sherry up on any occasion when previously beer and pizza would have done. Walter, who had such a knack for titles, his student play, A Bird Without Feathers or a Ghost comes to mind, knew his own striving circles, and, in the times that he was straight with himself, saw that he too was prone to social climbing and sometimes being more impressed than was warranted. In Blood Will Out, The True Story of a Murder, a Mystery, and a Masquerade, his most recent book, 
that tendency comes to the fore. It's a ruthlessly honest account of his having been taken in by Christian Karl Gerhardt's writer, also known as Christopher Chichester, or, as he'd introduced himself to Walter, Clark Rockefeller, an aspiring writer, aristocratic dilettante, and member of the legendarily wealthy and powerful iconic East Coast American family. In Blood Will Out, Kern recounts his own strange deception by one of the greatest of American frauds, and the part he himself played in it, transporting the supposed Rockefeller's crippled dog from Montana to Manhattan, and then, after blood did out, attending the trial for murder of the man he discovered he'd known so little about. Here's Janet Porter reading a short passage from the book. From Blood Will Out by Walter Kern The kidnapping made international news and later inspired a TV movie exposing Clark Rockefeller as a fraud and the most prodigious serial imposter in recent history. It also connected him to a lineage older and in a certain fashion richer than that of the founding family of Standard Oil, the shape-shifting trickster of American myth and literature. In Melville's The Confidence Man, His Masquerade, this figure takes the form of a mutating devil aboard a riverboat who feeds on his fellow passengers' moral defects. In Huckleberry Finn, he again stalks the Mississippi River as the Duke and the Dauphin, flamboyant mock aristocrats whose swindles are cloaked in Elizabethan claptrap. In The Great Gatsby, he's a preening gangster sprouted from a North Dakota farm boy. In Patricia Highsmith's Ripley novels, he's a murderous social-climbing dilettante. In Joseph Heller's Catch-22, he's Milo Minderbinder, the blithe wheeler-dealer who'd blow up the world if he saw a profit in it. He's the villain with a thousand faces, a kind of charming, dark-side cowboy, perennially slipping off into the sunset and reappearing at dawn in a new outfit. But if Clark was all that, I'd learn after the trial that he understood his literary provenance and took great pride in it. Then what was I? A fool. A stubborn fool. When his story began to unravel during the manhunt and the Rockefellers claimed not to know him, I told a fellow reporter that they were lying, a family of cowards running from a scandal. I only backed down when his German name was published and the word Lebensraum echoed through my head. The disclosure unsettled me, but it also softened me, especially when more facts about his background trickled out in the days after his capture. I, too, had a German name and German blood, and I'd spent a summer during college living in Bavaria, his home province. I was 18 then, about the same age he was when in 1979, two years before my stay in Munich, he left the small town of his youth for the United States. I'd left my own small town that year, for Princeton. I knew that yearning. No wonder we'd been friends. This state of befuddled recognition ended when it was reported a couple of weeks after the kidnapping that Clark, the name Christian would never fit the slot, it lacked a snap I associated with him, had been linked through his fingerprints to a certain Christopher Chichester, who was wanted for questioning it in a cold case murder. The grisly particulars of the crime unnerved me. In 1985, John Sohus's corpse had been dismembered and buried in his mother's yard, where his bones were unearthed nine years later by swimming pool excavators. Linda Sohus, the victim's wife, had vanished at the same time as her husband. Her body had never been recovered. Nor had police been able to locate Chichester, who'd been living on the property in a guest house rented from Sohus's mother. 
Freud suggests there's a real self which is being masked, but Clark Rockefeller, you know, I call him in the book a cannibal of souls. He fed completely on the situation and context. So, I mean, in some ways, he's an actor of psychopathic purity who completely lacks selfhood and shapes himself according to whatever he decides is going to be the script. But he's a chameleon, obviously. He's a shapeshifter. He's a completely reactive and opportunistic ghost of a being who looks at you, discovers your prejudices, your weakness, your desires, and then almost instantly comports himself to fulfill them. It made me think of Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, the French existentialist philosopher who identifies four types of people who, in a sense, are living intensely well. And one of them is the artist, another is the traveler. But what they have in common is a capacity for constant reinvention. Do you think there was something satisfying for Christian Karl Gerhardseiter, as they may have been for you, the writer, in creating this fairly elaborate identity? Well, it was clear to me, especially as I got to know him at the end when he'd been unmasked, but also a little when I knew him, that he wanted to be an artist and that he liked to, after he'd run the Clark Rockefeller game on you, suggest that he was secretly an artist, a writer, and he was writing all these books under the table. But here was his problem. He wasn't an artist and he couldn't be because he could not imagine other minds properly. You know, empathy is what allows us to understand what's going on in others. It's not just, you know, some warm, fuzzy tenderness towards others. And so I think because he didn't really know how human feelings worked, he couldn't invent in an artistic way other beings. He could only ape behavior. And so if his life was in a way a substitute for a novel or a substitute for a movie performance, I think it was frustrating to him because though he knew he was fooling people with it, he could never really get the kind of applause that an artist gets. He brings to mind as well the great Shakespearean line that Macbeth says where he says, I'm steeped in blood so far that, what is it, should I wade no more, returning where his tedious is to go over. Do you think that he at some point just sort of gave in to the sum of his accumulating lies? How do you think he set out on that path? Well, you know, a lot of writing this book and a lot of really poring over the material and my memories and impressions ended up spoiling me for the literary and conventional accounts of how people become frauds. And I don't think that old tragic notion of a normal or decent person slowly being trapped by some original trick or lie was true of him. You're very tough on yourself because there's a parallel narrative in which you're at least addressing the fact of his requiring a, a willing audience and finding that in you. Mm -hmm. Were you tough enough, do you think? Well, okay, in one world, I think I wasn't tough enough because I didn't really emphasize that I had so many of the same potentials, so many capabilities for falsity, so many layers of performance in my own self. Uh, well, you do in talking about your years as a student at Princeton and at Oxford. So I was an internal immigrant in the United States. 
I went from a very parochial, isolated little town to big metropolitan, internationalist, bohemian artistic Princeton, which was also a very moneyed and materialist place. And like everybody who moves from one subculture to another and has any ambitions to succeed in it, I had to rearrange myself. And I can forgive it because I tend to think it's almost culturally inevitable skill set in America, where we find ourselves in so many stages, we're so mobile class-wise and geographically, and we develop that. And those skills for shape-shifting that I developed as a young person are nothing compared to the chops that I think social media kids have, who can be one person on Snapchat, one person on Facebook, and who have so multiplied and fractured the self that they could probably hardly figure out where it all started. What is the American aspect of this invention of self or this myth-making? It's obviously in our history. A lot of people came here running from something, hiding something, wanting to ditch something. But it's really almost theologically concerning because it's about the devil. The confidence man is the devil. He can take any form and he can win any heart and impress any mind. And I think Clark was a creature on that order, frankly. I mean, peeling away the onion, getting to absolutely no center, only a sort of like insectile, calculating, algorithmic mind, really made me wonder if that was evil defined. Is there, does there need to be a lesson for you? Was there a lesson for you in this? Is it just the reader that wants there to be one? No, no, no. There are several lessons, some overlapping, some weirdly contradictory. The main lesson for me was that the false calls to the false. His falsity, his inauthenticity, his opportunism brought out in some kind of homeopathic way my own, that dishonest see the dishonesty in their victims and tend it, curate it, grow it. And so my susceptibility to Clark was my own self-delusion. Secondly, another lesson for all of us really is that I think these people represent a kind of absolute difference. I mean, that's really unfashionable to say. We like to think that everybody's the same, just on different parts of a spectrum. But I actually think creatures like Clark, and to be very dehumanizing and say creature, they're like wolves among deer. They're another spiritual species. They're basically predatory. And so they see all the things that we think makes us human, our trust, our kindness, our willingness to tolerate cognitive dissonance, and they exploit us because they see the rest of us ultimately as fools. They hate themselves, but they somehow stay one step ahead of that, or they hate that they have no self, and they envy those who do. But they stay one step ahead of that frustration or self-loathing by constantly making fools of everybody else. I may be nothing, but you are less than nothing, and you fall for nothing. You're tricked by nothing. Do you think that whatever its effect may have been on your art has actually worked itself through? Do you find yourself writing differently now than before? Well, it made me a softer, somewhat less acerbic writer. There was something terribly harsh about the experience, 
about being with someone who, deep down, whether I knew it consciously or not, was a murderer. I mean, was that drastically terrible? And it was absolutely humiliating and chastening and sobering to realize that I, as a observer, as a writer, never saw it, couldn't see it. So it made me humbler. And I think it also made me more sympathetic to the human predicament in general, because though I made myself a case study of the you know, fool, what is life but being fooled over and over again? I mean, we're fooled by politicians. Every four years in the United States, we fall for the same manic optimism about somebody who's just a person and then are disappointed. Our markets run on creating huge, overeager enthusiasms and then disappointing them. Our love affairs tend to run through the same cycle of grandiosity, illusion, and then deflation. So I saw everybody as passing through this, and that's really why I wrote the book. People really resist, the ego really resists, the notion that it's vulnerable and trickable. And I think a lot of people read this book went, you know, well, this guy's an idiot. I don't know what else I can learn here. Meanwhile, their wife has another husband, you know, in another state or something, and the person they just voted for is a complete charlatan. But maybe they don't want to know that. Chameleons, imposters, or frauds abound, but so too does authentic friendship and the love that bridges generations. Such love can defy the stereotypes imposed by society's disinterest and worse, the prejudices that are often the consequences of calamitous ignorance. We're learning about this in Canada, painfully, the story of the country's missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, of the systemic abuse of residential schools and the 1960s scoop of children away from their families, a deep, festering wound that, with acknowledgement, may finally be on the way to being attended to. The Governor-General's award-winning poet Katerina Vermette is from Winnipeg and Metis. Her stunning first novel, The Break, begins with the witnessing of an assault and spirals on from there. Brave for the writer to make it so, the assault is what it is, but it's also a symptom, one wrecked by traumatised members of the Indigenous community upon another of their own. Immediately, the reader is wholly immersed in this world, a part of it. It's one that can be crude and violent and bleak, but that quickly and surely we discover to be extraordinarily redemptive too, replete as it is with the love of family, of women and friends spanning generations and pushing the community steadfastly forward. One of the manifold ways into this heartbreaking but also heart-lifting story is provided by the Matisse policeman Tommy. His very being is a bridge between the indigenous community and the settler one of which his patrol partner Christy and wife Hannah are a part. From Katerina Vermetz, The Break. Tommy reviews his notes as he drives north up Main Street. In his head, all those women blend into one, their faces so similar. The young girl, poor Emily, tiny and broken in the hospital bed, her aunt with the haunting eyes looking so carefully, and the witness lady, so relieved they didn't think she was crazy anymore. They all look the same, Same long, dark hair, straight and shiny. Same almond eyes, almost. He's so fucking tired. Had to come in early again. Dragged Christy in early again. He really will never hear the end of it. He hopes somewhere in there his partner admires his eagerness 
and it will reflect well on him. He has painstakingly written and rewritten all his notes. They're meeting with the sergeant later, and he wants everything to look as it should. All the numbers marked and right, all the notes clean and detailed. He's never done anything so important. So far, his reports have been pretty basic, but this case is different. Everything has to be right. He wants to do one more interview tonight. There's one more place he wants to check out. Christy thinks it's just to rule it out, but Tommy has a feeling. This is what Tommy tells his wife, Hannah, at supper, trying to make it sound less desperate than it really is. I know it's the house, he says. I just got to get one person to say the wrong thing, just one. He cuts his meat firmly. He's really not that hungry, but Hannah likes Sunday dinners, even if they're early and before he goes to work. Well, that's not likely to happen, is it? says Hannah. I mean, they don't like to talk to police, do they? Hannah eats delicately, chews slowly like she's really not enjoying her food at all. You have to ask the right questions the right way, babe. He likes to think she thinks he's tough, but she just looks at him with pity. They're gangsters, Tommy. They're, like, sadistic and don't give a crap. They're not going to, like, feel sorry for some girl. It doesn't happen like on TV. They're killers and rapists and drug dealers. Tommy wishes he could look at her with the same kind of pity, but he knows better. She would catch him and then go off. She always catches his looks, so he only thinks them now. I mean, they don't care about anyone, says Hannah. They're just thugs and criminals. You can't reason with them. She says reason like it's the craziest idea of all. Tommy wants her to be wrong. He wants to prove her wrong. He doesn't quite know why, but it bugs him. She has a lot of opinions about people and places she has never known or been to. He's already told her way too much about the case and reminds her to keep it to herself. I won't say anything, Tom. God! She takes both their plates. His fork is poised mid-air. He was going to take another half bite. I mean, all my friends already know what a fucked up city we live in. I'm not going to, like, confirm it. Katerina Vermette. My first obligation in writing about my own community is to my own community. I want my characters to feel accurately represented. I think that as Indigenous women, we live in a very violent and sometimes very unsafe community. And it's not just non-Indigenous persons preying upon Indigenous women. It is also people within community And for many reasons, I mean, these are legacies of abuse perpetrated by residential school experiences, which have really decimated families in a lot of ways. And there are many interior social issues that need to be and that are being addressed by many supportive workers, which are mentioned in the book. And we're talking about horrific violence. Yes. And I guess what I was trying to say was... I did grow up very similarly to some of the women in the book. I did grow up in this world seemingly on guard because there was a lot of dangers, not only on the street in your own community, but also outside of your community. And what I wanted to represent in the book is this idea of that becoming a part of psyche, personal psyche, but also becoming a part of community culture because the incidences of violence, and there's several actually in the book, that I try to talk about as gently as possible because I recognize there's so many emotional triggers in the book actually come from a bunch of different places. So I was looking at the interior community that prey upon young girls and vulnerability and also the outsiders who come in and can stalk people. Those are shadowy incidents Mm -hmm. at the margin of your story. Right. 
What I wanted to create is the idea of not only is there violence and potential violence coming from a number of different areas, but that this actual incident of violence comes from an area that people were not prepared to look. It's kind of like you're looking out, everyone is kind of trying to guess. People really want to know and they're trying to guess where this has come from and what they can do to keep their loved ones safe. But the idea was not that it was someone in their own community, but that the perpetrator was someone that they didn't expect. And then um, we don't know who is going to be assaulted because every one of those women put themselves in danger in some way. Does the break itself actually exist? Yeah, it does. All the places that are mentioned in the book are real places and the break is this hydro field. This was something that started as seeds in my head many years ago when I was living in a house in a very similar neighborhood around the place that actually is the break. And it was more a composite of many different stories that I had heard. There are many missing and murdered Indigenous women in my community. There are many stories of violence that I know. And I didn't want to take um, any one story. So there's many things that I think people will find familiar in this, those of us who maybe grew up in the North End, those of us who maybe know the people that I know. But I really was careful to not take someone's story and duplicate it. And women are an extraordinary force. There's a lot of single moms. There's a lot of those houses. Not exclusively by any means, but there's a lot of very strong, independent women who have very women-centered families. I wanted to learn about their experience. That was what was intriguing to me. I wanted to talk about how they relate to one another. It does feel very women-centric in a lot of ways, and I think that's why I brought Tommy in. Tommy is the Metis policeman yeah. partner to the yes. older white Christie, yeah. who's callous in a way that isn't necessarily racist. It may be, but it's more of a... Casual racism, kind of delicate, well-intended guy. Um, I really learned to love Christy. It took a while. I had to write myself into really enjoying his company. And I think that's where Tommy's voice came in, is because there wasn't a need to be balanced. Balance between what? Balance between genders. I think the exploitation of women is the story of women, so it's okay, we can stay around the women characters here. But Tommy was really kind of that way into a different perspective. Tommy's also something of a bridge. Yes. Between worlds. Yes. To explain a bit of the demographics around Indigenous people in the north end of Winnipeg, you have a lot of Cree people, you have a lot of Anishinaabe people, and you have a lot of Métis people. And there's a lot of intersectionality between those different cultural groups and also white and European. It's almost a pan-Indigenous community. So you have one family that is Métis, but also Anishinaabe. And then you have Tommy, whose mom is Anishinaabe, but he is also Métis. Those lines become very confusing, but I wanted to mush them up a little bit, and I think Tommy's story tries to make inroads into explaining that. At some point, does the simple fact of your being a woman lead to an exasperation with a level of education that is missing in some of your characters who speak of women being S-E-X-E-D or wanting the worst things are going to happen to them? Um... The short answer is yeah, but the longer answer is I think sexism is this really big umbrella and operating within that patriarchy is something that we all figure out in our own way. And the quote you were talking about is coming from a 14-year-old boy where this is his world. 
you know, we're specifically talking about gang violence and joining gangs and that as a 14-year-old boy in the inner city, that dominates his life. It's very natural for him to be not only drawn to that and repelled by that, but also be contemplating and analytical about why these things are in the way that he can as a 14-year-old boy. It's not to be sympathetic. It's not to excuse behavior. But I'm really fascinated with where that violence comes from. I really want to understand, and I think when we understand, if we possibly can, I don't know. But I think thinking about root causes of where that comes from can stop it from happening again. But I don't say these things to place blame. It's more of an insight into a world. There's not this idea like this is wrong and this is this is right. The fact is that this is a situation that exists in the world. We're not looking at good or bad. We're looking at the exploitation of young women. And I think we're all learning and the world is getting better in a very slow way. Progress, right? You can explore history and talk about root causes and talk about how things are. But at the same time, individuals can work through their own stuff in their own way, in their own time. I think it's very validating when people understand where they come from and what they come from. Many of those legacies are incredibly positive and incredibly strong. And in the book, we explore this also, the idea of reclaiming selfhood through traditional practices. But it's also understanding that there's things in the history that make things the way they are. But there's many things to sort out. There are people in this book who are damaged, and there's many reasons for their damage. Some of those are personal choices, and some of those are circumstantial. I don't think that one necessarily takes away from the other. And I don't think that there's any slackers in my characters. I really admire my characters. I think that there's this ownership that they take of their lives and this control that I see in Indigenous women over and over and over again. And that's what I wanted to represent. That's it for Friends and Frauds, this edition of 128 Sterling. Walter Kern's Blood Will Out, The True Story of a Murder, a Mystery and a Masquerade was published in paperback in 2015 by LiveWrite. Katerina Vermette's The Break is published by the House of Anansi, as is Lynn Crosby too. That poem you heard at the top was written by her for this podcast, and if you're as slayed by the mood of it as I am, then you'll want to read her poem, Liar her excruciatingly painful but also very funny novel, Life is About Losing Everything, or Where Did You Sleep Last Night, her highly original haute fan-fiction novel of Kurt Cobain. The links and details of all these writers' works can be found on the 128 Sterling page of the House of Anansi website. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. Janet Porter was our reader, and Charles Spirin did the musical bits. Next time, in Miscellany, I'll be presenting, well, something of a miscellany. And for those of you who listened to the last episode, you'll remember I said you'd hear from Zoe Whittle, and you will, but next time. Till then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>